All right, we are back, pulling some quotes and quips from our archives, as we are wont to do. I have this from Francois Rabelais. One should never push one's enemies to the point of despair, because such a state multiplies his strength and increases his courage. And for quips, we have humorous Franklin P. Jones weighing in with, Honest criticism is hard to take, particularly from a relative, a friend, an acquaintance, or a stranger. All right, we've got a few humorous items I think we should delve into. First, coming from, again, our archives and a copy of Radar Magazine, which we've saved from November of 05. Radar used to churn out lists that we liked very much. <laughs> well, this issue had quite a few of them, such as a list of actual books which allegedly are clarifying God's thoughts on personal finance and how to get ahead. Numbered among them, God wants you to be an entrepreneur. God wants you to be rich. God wants you very rich. God wants you to grow. How to live beyond your limitations. And God wants you to roll. And under the headline, I will not love you long time, comes advice for men who hope to date Asian women from the editors of Audrey, a magazine for Asian Americans. First of all, for the love of God, don't open up with I love Asian women or hello in any of the Asian languages. Two, don't assume we are interested in any of the following. Feng Shui, acupuncture, karate, jail jewelry, embroidering skills, Buddhism, the Great Wall of China, any Asian stringed instrument, anecdotes about meeting Miss China or the Dalai Lama. Three, don't ask us for advice on herbal medicines. Four, don't take us to an Asian restaurant where the entire waitstaff consists of Asian women dressed up in traditional Asian costumes. And lastly, don't ask us for a massage, ever. Advice from the editors of Audrey, a magazine for Asian Americans. Here's one we have to like. Taboo terms per the Writer's Guidelines for Christian Romance Novels, published by Steeple Hill, a Harlequin imprint. They suggest you not use arousal or bra or buttocks slash butt, but you can say derriere or backside. Don't say damn, but you can say blast. And you're prohibited from saying dag nabbit. You're instructed not to use for heaven's sake, although you can use for goodness sake. You cannot use miracle, except when used in the biblical context. Finding that Diet Coke was a miracle is not allowed. Do not use oh my God or oh God, except when it is clearly part of a prayer, not as an exclamation. You're also proscribed from using passion, priest, sexy, sex, sexual attraction, undergarments, or whore. And if, uh, if, like us, you've ever been startled by the use of the F word in a movie over and over and over again, you probably wondered, what movies take the cake? <laughs> the most use of this four-letter word. Well, it's not Scarface. It only shows up 218 times. It's not Goodfellas. It only shows up 246 times. It's not Pulp Fiction, where it only makes 271 appearances. Nor is it The Big Lebowski, <laughs> where you find it 281 times. 
And it's not casino, where <laughs> the word appears 422 times. No, apparently 2005's The Devil's Rejects takes the cake at 560. Yay. Now, I never heard of this movie, unlike all the other ones I mentioned. And one reason I never went to see it, I hear there's quite a bit of swearing in it. To which I say, blast! Now, Radio Parallax cannot help but be drawn into the controversy over which pair of cities has the world's largest moose statue. Apparently, Moose Jaw Saskatchewan held the undisputed title for 31 years until Norwegian officials installed a 33-foot colossus Storelgen, which translates as Big Moose. This is outside of Storvedal, Norway, back in 2015. Well, Moose Jaw is mulling methods for enlarging its sculpture, known as Mac the Moose. These proposals include fitting him with a hat, a hockey stick, skates, larger antlers, or even stiletto heels. Said Major Fraser Tomley, Canada's national pride is on the line. We can't lose it to Norway over a moose. And here's a, one final archival item that, that I just cannot resist. According to the week in October, August 26th of 2005, Victoria Beckham, better known as Posh Spice of the Spice Girls, published an autobiography, but it was noted that she's not much of a reader. Victoria supposedly told the Spanish magazine Chic, I haven't read a book in my life. I prefer to listen to music, although I do love fashion magazines. The singer-turned-fashion designer says she has not yet read her own ghost-written book, Learning to Fly. Also, the two autobiographies of her husband, soccer star David Beckham. The thing that we admire in this terrible story about Posh Spice is that at least she admits she has not yet read her own autobiography. Would that Donald Trump own up to the fact that Tony Schwartz's Art of the Deal was written by Tony Schwartz? And as far as anybody can tell, Donald Trump never actually read it. Now, we don't have any proof of that. But as far as we know, Donald Trump, who makes all sorts of unusual claims, has never said, I've read the book. And speaking of Trump, as I'm sitting here before the microphone, I'm looking over where I have a couple of books propped up. Well, I have three books propped up. One of them is Jane Mayer's Dark Money, which we will get to, but not today. The other two sort of bookends. One is titled The Plot to Hack America by Malcolm Nance, which I think we talked about on last week's show. A lot of information in there about Roger Stone, Paul Manafort, all sorts of chicanery with the Russians. And amazingly, was apparently put to print before the 2016 election. But next to it, I have a book by Dan Kovalik titled The Plot to Scapegoat Russia which apparently takes the viewpoint that, oh, all those fake things that appeared on Facebook didn't really swing the election. And anyway, Russia didn't buy that many of them. Now, apparently, Dan Kovalik has made himself something of authority of, well, United States slash CIA misdeeds around the world, of which there have been many. But I was quite stunned to see in this book the introduction by David Talbot, who we've had on three times. And someone we respect a great deal. But in his intro to this book, The Plot to Scapegoat Russia, 
subheadlined how the CIA and the deep state have conspired to vilify Russia, David Talbot said, I have no desire to live or work in Putin's Russia. Independent journalists and dissident leaders are constantly at risk there. Well, yeah. But while the Kremlin casts a shadow over Russia's own freedom and democracy, its ability to project power and influence abroad is wildly overstated by the U.S. war lobby. Well, that's undoubtedly true. But writing in April of 2017, Talbot said, The deep state crowed when Trump abandoned his flirtation with Putin. This was inevitable, opined Philip Gordon, a former NSC apparatchik now embedded in the Council on Foreign Relations. Trump's early Let's Be Friends initiative was incompatible with our interests, and you knew it would end in tears. Well, I think the jury is still out on whether uh, Donald Trump has turned his back on Vladimir Putin. And you know, sometimes it is really hard to sort out what's really going on when you're being propagandized from all sorts of directions. I have no doubt that some of the data that's come out regarding Russiagate is probably tainted. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. Mr. Kovalik was quoting various CIA sources talking about misdeeds around the world, and they're undoubtedly true, but he was taking them as gospel. And the truth is, you know, when you want to get valuable intelligence data, the question is, who's your source? Why is he telling it to you? How much of it can you rely upon? Kovalik put a lot of, of faith in a former CIA agent, John Stockwell, talking about misdeeds. But in reading it, I had to say, well, okay, in Kovalik's mind, this is the good CIA guy. Thus, he's not a propagandist. Thus, everything he has to say, you should just take at face value. Maybe not. And yeah, I'm sure that what's going on in Venezuela right now uh, has to do with us trying to destabilize a regime we don't like. On the other hand, it's doing a pretty good job of discrediting itself based on its misdeeds, it seems. Anyway, we're not going to get into that today. It's hard to disagree with David Talbot when he says that, uh, you know, the Russian threat has been overblown historically. A lot of what they did looks as bad or worse as a lot of things we did, such as, we talked about last August, the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia, which took place 50 years ago last summer. It's probably worth recalling that the 1968 Prague Spring was an experiment in political and cultural freedom initiated by Alexander Dubček. Czechoslovakia's Communist Party leader, who said he wanted to implement socialism with a human face. A few months later, Warsaw Pact troops invaded, occupied Czechoslovakia, and killed more than 70 people. Curiously, the current Czech Republic president, Milos Zeman, described as a close ally to Russia's President Vladimir Putin, did not attend any commemorative events last summer. And Putin's been trying to win friends uh, in Hungary as well. It should be noted that the government of Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban has removed a statue of an anti-Soviet hero from a square near the parliament. Imre Negi, a former prime minister, was executed in 1958 for his role in Hungary's failed 1956 uprising against Soviet proxy rule. The authoritarian Orban replaced Negi's statue with a reconstruction of a monument dedicated to the victims of a communist regime that briefly held power in 1919. That monument was originally erected by Hungary's anti-Semitic World War II-era leader Milos Horthy, a Nazi ally. Critics say the right-wing Orban is trying to rehabilitate Horthy. Orban, described as a close ally of Russian President Vladimir Putin, may also be seeking to downplay the Soviet oppression of Hungary. 
And meanwhile, in Russia, last week they held a military parade in zero-degree weather to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the lifting of the 1941 to 1944 siege of Leningrad. More than one million people died, mostly of hunger, during that two and a half years that Nazi forces surrounded the city, today known as St. Petersburg. 5,000 people staged a petition denouncing the parade, saying such military pomp was an insult to the memory of those who slowly starved to death. Survivor Yakov Gilinsky said, I'm against militarism. War is horrible. Vladimir Putin, a native of the city, whose elder brother died in the siege as an infant, skipped the parade and instead visited a memorial to the dead. All right, where are we going next? Let's see, I have a copy of uh, the Big Five Sporting Goods section that I cut out to remind me of something, and I can't remember what it was. Oh, I think I remember now. It was something else that Penn & Teller did. One of their shows took on the fitness industry. It was pretty funny as, as they talked to somebody explaining why supplements that they sell at a very high price in these various boutiques supposedly dedicated to fitness, uh, well, they don't work. They interviewed one muscle man who was explaining why it is most of these things don't work before he then launched an explanation for why you should buy his supplements. And I think at this point we need to do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for natural beauty. With a White House denial that President Trump uses a self-tanning cream to achieve his year-round orange glow. A Trump aide stated that he owes his distinctive skin tone and the equally distinctive white patches around his eyes to, quote, good genes, unquote. And we're thinking, maybe a tanning bed. And it was, on the other hand, a bad week. Last week for The B Word. This is after former Starbucks CEO and aspiring presidential contender Howard Schultz urged Americans to stop using that ugly slur, billionaire. Schultz suggested that people who have acquired unimaginable riches should be referred to as, quote, people of means, unquote, or perhaps, quote, people of wealth, unquote. But for God's sakes, not billionaire. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for gratitude, with the news that an Indian man has announced that he was suing his parents for bringing him into the world without his consent. Raphael Samuel of Mumbai says that his parents selfishly had me for their joy and their pleasure, and that he didn't ask to exist. And anyway, speaking of People of Means, article from the Washington Post by Tony Rom, Craig Timberg, and Aaron C. Davis is interesting. Under the headline, Billionaire, oh, that terrible word, apologizes for funding group that spread disinformation. We've been sitting on this one since November. Said the piece, Billionaire Reed Hoffman apologized for funding a group linked to a highly disturbing effort that spread disinformation during last year's Alabama special election. Hoffman's statement is his first acknowledgement of his ties to a campaign that adopted tactics similar 
to those deployed by Russian operatives during the 2016 presidential election. In Alabama, the Hoffman-funded group allegedly used Facebook and Twitter to undermine support for Republican Roy Moore and boost Democrat Doug Jones, who narrowly won the race. Hoffman, an early Facebook investor and the co-founder of Sunnyvale-based LinkedIn, expressed support for a federal investigation into what happened. Hoffman named a group he funded, American Engagement Technologies, or AET, as being involved in the effort to spread disinformation targeting more. Yeah, they spread disinformation, and apparently it helped. So the lesson apparently learned by various uh, tech-based firms is that what happened in the 2016 election is terrible. By all means, let's use those methods very effectively in the future for our side. We would refer you at this point to the New Yorker piece by Jeffrey Tubin, titled Roger Stone and Jerome Corsi's Time in the Barrel. These couple of near-do-wells were apparently involved in that chain of events of Russia breaking into DNC computers, stealing data, slipping it to Julian Assange, and then handing it over to, well, or at least coordinating with, Republican operatives in the Trump camp to make sure that information got best utilized. Robert Mueller apparently is still running this all down, and boy, don't you want to see what that report is, which I guess is coming up soon. Speaking of tech, there's an ad out there that I keep hearing on the radio. I forget the name of the company, but the tagline associated with it is, perceive like a human, act like a robot. Don't you think, dear listener, a better better way to look at it would be Perceive like a robot, act like a human. And does this headline worry anybody? You know, it involves a president that was elected using social media and tech companies uh, strip mining of our data. Headline from article by Rex Crum in the Bay Area News Group. AI development gets boost from White House. Subheadline, Trump signs an executive order to establish the American AI Initiative. Oh, and here's the components of the initiative. One, redirect funding so federal agencies make artificial intelligence an investment priority. Two, create resources to give AI researchers more access to federal data, computer models, and computing resources. Three, direct the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, to establish new standards that will promote the development of stronger and more secure AI systems that are interoperable and portable. Four, call on federal agencies to put greater priority on retraining and preparing workers to use AI technologies. And fifth, build a strategy for greater engagement that also ensures Americans' interests and values are central to the development of artificial intelligence on the international market. What could possibly go wrong? And one of the most amazing things about Silicon Valley, where they're working so hard on AI, like Dr. Victor Frankenstein supposedly once worked so hard on his creation. We have this headline news, technology section from the Bay Area News Group, which is, you know, completely in bed with Silicon Valley. The headline is, Are AI, comma, automation displacing humans? Question mark. You know, we do await their next investigative piece. Is the Pope Catholic? One of the subheadlines is, Tech is splitting labor in two, changing our jobs. Yes, it's splitting labor in two. Whereas before you had labor, now you have labor and robots. I love this little item buried about 
six paragraphs down. The forecast of an American where robots do all the work while humans live off some yet-to-be-invented welfare program may be a Silicon Valley pipe dream. Yeah, you know, that would just be a dream come true, wouldn't it? Robots are doing all of our work and we're getting somehow, in some way, welfare. The piece notes that automation is splitting the U.S. labor force into two worlds. A small island of highly educated professionals making good wages at corporations like Intel or Boeing, which reap hundreds of thousands of dollars in profit per employee. That island sits in the middle of a sea of less educated workers who are stuck at businesses like hotels, restaurants, and nursing homes that generate smaller profits per employee and stay viable primarily by keeping wages low. Peace then says, even economists are reassessing their belief that technological progress lifts all boats, and they're beginning to worry about the new configuration of work. The piece quotes Darren Asamoglu, an economist at MIT, is saying, the view that we should not worry about any of these things and follow technology to wherever it will go is insane. An accompanying article related to this shows a robot hamburger grilling cafe, which is now opened up in San Francisco. Of course, the piece notes, nobody's perfect, not even robots. So at some Bay Area businesses where automation is front and center, robots still need a helping hand or two in making sure everything's okay. Peace notes that experts are saying that jobs in food preparation are among those at the highest risk of being displaced by automation. Let's see, you open a large restaurant chain, you hire robots to do the work, You're never going to have to pay them any kind of uh, retirement benefits. In the end, they're going to save you a lot of money, and you're going to become, well, let's just say, a person of great wealth, perhaps. They show pictures in the piece of of a a restaurant called Creator in San Francisco, where two gigantic robots are making the burgers as more than a dozen humans are working. Some of the humans were test engineers there to ensure that the robots, which make up to 120 hamburgers an hour, were working efficiently. Tell you what, I'm not going to eat at a restaurant where a robot makes my hamburger, okay? I'm just just not. Whenever it's humanly possible, I will not use the automatic checkout line at a store because, well, that just means Lowe's or Home Depot or whoever has to hire fewer people. I also had to crack up by the piece in the business section of uh, the East Bay News Group talking about, well, the headline was, Making New Drugs with a Dose of Artificial Intelligence. It's actually a reprint of an article from the New York Times where it starts out saying, you can think of it as the World Cup of Biochemical Research. It sounds great, but I think getting closer to the essential issue was the piece that appeared in New Scientist about all this. Their piece by Joshua Haugegos said, pharmaceutical companies spend billions researching blockbuster drugs and billions more on lawyers' fees to patent and protect recipes for making them. But an artificial intelligence has shown it can quickly find new legal ways to cook up such drugs. Peace explains how chemists often create recipes for drugs through retrosynthesis, involving working backwards from the desired end product to find starting materials. There's more than one way to do this. And Barton Grzbowski at the Olsland National Institute in Science and Technology in South Korea has been developing an AI called Chematica to devise better chemical recipes than humans can. Now, the drug companies patent their recipe for how to make it. The AI figures out a new, slightly different way to derive the end product and thereby gets around the legal restrictions. I think this has a bit of a bad odor to it. Oh, 
The piece also notes that Chematica caused an earlier stir back in 2012 when Grabowski and his colleagues used it to find ways of making the nerve gas VX from readily available chemicals, including water, table salt, and sulfuric acid. This earned him an invitation to the Pentagon, he says, where he called for better regulation of chemicals that can be used to make weapons. Oh, so he's being socially responsible about it. I hope so. If you're going to make VX nerve gas in your garage, you, you, know, you better know what you're doing. All right, in the five minutes or so we have left, I would like to, um, again, put a plug in for They Shall Not Grow Old, Peter Jackson's Labor of Love that took four years to make uh, using World War I footage and, and actual interviews with participants in what was called the Great War, the war to end all wars. It's, it's a marvelous accomplishment, and it is my hope that you will take it in. Now, on public radio, there's a thing called a call to action, <laughs> which we're not allowed to do. I'm not allowed to say, and I should not say, that you, you must see this film. But I believe if you elect to do so, you will be a better person for it. All right, we've got five minutes left. We need some appropriate music, Mr. McMillan. Now, a film I had some doubts about seeing was Stan and Ollie. I've always been a big fan of Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy. But I was afraid this movie would be something of a downer. Well, I'm happy to report it's not. It does have some bittersweet moments examining the boys in the twilight of their career. But it's a credible effort, and the two actors, Steve Coogan and John C. Riley, are just channeling Stan and Ollie. It turned out that my honey, who accompanied me to the movie, had actually never seen a Laurel and Hardy picture. So the context of some of it was lost on her, but that was quickly corrected by coming home and seeing what's available on YouTube, which it turns out is quite a lot. Now, if, God forbid, you too have never seen a Laurel and Hardy picture, dear listener, you might want to check out what is available on YouTube. And if I might make a suggestion, I would say start with The Music Box. William K. Everson, in the films of Laurel and Hardy, had this to say about it. An Academy Award winner as the best short subject of 1932. The Music Box is one of the richest and most rewarding of all the Laurel and Hardy films, and one of the best edited. Despite the fact that the a full three reels are devoted to one basic gag, there is continual variety of action and a small but steady flow of new characters to lend punctuation to the various episodes. In this film, the boys are piano movers. They're hired to transport a piano to an address which turns out to be in the top of a hill reachable by a very, very long flight of stairs. As luck would have it, the night after seeing the film, they were showing Laurel and Hardy features at the Niles SNA Museum. So, we took in a couple. In one of them, comedy actor Ben Turpin makes an appearance, which was a great delight to the Niles audience because Ben Turpin was there in 1915 with Charlie Chaplin when he made his first feature for SNA films. And there's a further local angle to all of this, at least through Niles, which we will hopefully have film historian David Keane come on in the future to tell us about. Bronco Billy Anderson, the man who brought both Ben Turpin and Charlie Chaplin to Niles, also has the distinction of filming the first feature in which Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy appear together. This is the 1917 release. Lucky Dog. Stan plays a character not at all like the one he adopts in, in their comedy duo, and Oliver Hardy plays a bad guy with a mask and a gun. 
Nevertheless, it was the first time the two worked together as actors, and thus is another first we can credit to Bronco Billy Anderson. We must talk more about this in the future, and we shall. Unfortunately, we are so out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, who's about to become the newest member of Sons of the Desert, the Laurel and Hardy fan club. I apparently met the requirements to join, which is that I have a pulse. We'll see you next week.